Lewis, lately I've been reading a bit about DeFi and sci-fi, and I just I find, you know, uh, the decentralization of finance to be really fascinating and a very interesting process. So I look forward to learning more about that from you today. But before we get to all of that, please introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name is uh, Lewis Bateman. Um, I've been in the financial services industry for over 25 years now. Uh, and I've seen a major evolution and what people are saying right now, a revolution in the digital space. And I've been a participant um, at a senior level for the better part of the last 15 years, uh, working in the traditional uh, sell side, uh, doing trading and trade applications, uh, executing on trade, uh, working at the exchange. I was at the Toronto uh, stock market uh, for a number of years and working with their capital markets division, bringing participating members and high velocity trading uh, to then being at traditional asset management companies and even founding an asset management company. So I've seen the real evolution of uh, traditional uh, markets and now I've been an active participant in the blockchain space for better part of now seven years. And you might think of that as being a short duration of time, but in reality, that's, that's pretty long. And then you're seeing these new entrants coming in, uh, new institutional entrants, more than just uh, what I would call technology disruptors into the financial system. So uh, the terminologies we've seen are TradFi, and we can talk about that, uh, CFI, which is a centralized financial, and DeFi. And all of them have use cases and applications uh, for wealth and wealth generation. And I'm super excited that CGI is really trying to take a uh, strategic and uh, leadership uh, position in this on a go-forward basis. And I'm happy to help in that process with real life working experience, not only developing, but executing, allocating, and even doing mergers and acquisitions from an advisory perspective. So that's my general high level overview. And I look forward to talking more about that from what I've seen uh, in my past and what I'm hoping to see in our future. Yeah, that sounds amazing. and. I find uh, the blockchain, you know, technology, everything that's happening around it to be very fascinating. So it's amazing to work with someone like you with all your experiences. It sounds like you've led a very exciting life uh, within this space. Um, but before we get to some of these, you know, really interesting topics that have been dominating for the last little while, I sort of want to establish, you know, a, a foundation of sorts. So let's start with what is blockchain and what are cryptocurrencies? Sure. So a blockchain is a distributed ledger, right, that is peer-to-peer -peer, that allows for uh, electronic communication or validation of a ledger or value uh, that adds on an impenetrable uh, understanding so that if a transaction is to happen, the same ledger is now um, on multiple computers or servers or 
electronic copies, and that ledger can never be then deconstructed. And what that gives is really an opportunity uh, from a global perspective of information being disseminated, but not only the information, but the value that has been uh, accumulated for that relationship. And that blockchain is now available, uh, whether through cryptocurrencies or whether it be through traditional finance, because you can internalize blockchains. You can have open blockchains. The terminology itself is just a technology baseline for computing relationships and the value transmission and even the time transmission of that. And so what you have is an immediacy of a contractual relationship with your peer. Right. It sounds like there's a lot more to blockchain than just cryptocurrencies. Uh, it can be used for many different aspects of business. And that's something that I would like us to get a bit more into. Um, but you mentioned cryptos. And cryptos are, of course, very big. We hear about them all the time. Some of the top ones you know, being Bitcoin and Ethereum. But it's been, you know, cryptos have been having a very volatile time over the past little while. There's been a fair bit of craziness in that space. So can you sort of um, take a moment to, you know, give us an update on what's happening in the space and what we can expect in the short term? Absolutely. So I always think of crypto, uh, and more importantly, I like the term digital assets uh, as a delivery mechanism of wealth. And depending on the protocols that have been designed, whether it's the use case of Bitcoin, which is the white paper of Satoshi Nakamoto, or the design application of Ethereum through Vitalik and the Ethereum Foundation, uh, Vitalik Burchin, who's actually a Canadian who lives uh, in Toronto, um, you know, is a real opportunity basically to create sovereignty for someone's wealth. It becomes a currency that you can take hold of, whether through traditional finance or fiat contribution, and you buy that uh, expressed value, or whether you wish to participate it because you have a belief in the protocol system that is being developed that might bring some applications to the marketplace. I'll give you a prime example for, for uh, younger kids. Now you're seeing young kids uh, having an experience on a game and they create their own avatar or they create their own characterization. That characterization can actually be now on the blockchain. And if they're playing a game like Fortnite, but they want to play another game, and I, I don't know what other game it might be, but they're playing another game and they want to bring their own personal avatar to the next game, the blockchain allows them to do that. And if you want to add a level of sophistication to their character or you know, a, a, a level of uh, you know, sophistication to their, what they want to do, i.e. they can jump higher or they, they can hold a different weapon or they can you know, run faster, all of these things are now going to be on the blockchain as added services to your characterization, which then talks to what's going to happen to the metaverse. And 
what is the representation of you as a person in this new digital space? And so when I go to cryptocurrencies and the kind of conversation that you have, there's now thousands of listed tokens and currencies that are out there that uh, a generation now has the availability and the access through applications and broker dealers of digital broker dealers and exchanges that they can participate in and i think over the last couple of years especially through covid when people were at home and they weren't able to kind of be fluid in their travel and they weren't able to be um able to be social these applications have really taken a rise effect of either speculating on the value of them or or understanding the protocol and seeing that this could be something that can change from a web 2 informational development that we've had over the last 25 years to a web 3 where actually value contribution and value of service is now transmitted so not only the data set or the kind of the Google search, but what can you do with that Google search or that knowledge base so that you can take a transaction on? And that's really the Web3 from a, a very simplistic uh, thought process. Yeah, um, the Web3 and the metaverse, these are things that really fascinate, fascinate me. And when I think about you know, how the metaverse can be used outside of the gaming world, I mean, we're sort of starting there perhaps, but I know that there are many advisors, for instance, uh, in the wealth space who would love to be able to have a conversation with their client. Um, and now instead of the client having to travel to them or them having to travel to a client, you can meet in a virtual space where it almost feels like you're sitting you know, right in front of each other as we are right now. Um, and just having a very open and genuine discussion about you know, various topics, um, be it your financial plan, your portfolio, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there, and it's very exciting. Yeah, I think it's a tremendous opportunity with the abilities of AR and VR, and then when you add in the communication level, ultimately you have full discretion to be sovereign. And I'm going to say that word a lot in this conversation um, because I ultimately think the masses are getting more and more of an understanding because of the education or the ability for information readily available to them that more and more people are saying to themselves, how do I protect my self-interests? Because before, as we all know, uh, post-World War II, financial systems were centralized. Your financial safety was backed by governments and financial institutions. And more and more of that financial system that is centralized through transfer agents, that is centralized through a common depository, that is centralized through a price mechanism or price discovery of an exchange, that is centralized by a broker to execute on your behalf, that is centralized by a financial advisor to allocate a proper portfolio, all of those aspects of centralization or CFI, as I mentioned very early on in the conversation, are now being questioned. And the question is what value or added value 
as an advisor, as a broker-dealer, as a financial institution, as a trading application, and as a custody of assets are going to bring to now what is called DeFi or traditional finance. And how do those two ebbs and flows work together? And I think you're going to see uh, that wonderful mechanism that everyone now carries, that phone, is ultimately going to be your lifestyle application, your identifier of who you are as a person with facial recognition, and your asset wallet holder. And when I say asset wallet holder, it's not just your traditional wallet where I'm going to hold traditional fiat and a couple of credit cards and debit cards, but that wallet is going to be your full identifier of how much assets you have, where your assets are located, whether they're virtual, whether they're real assets, uh, your title ships of your homes, your proof of record of your birth date, all of these things are ultimately going to be on some form of blockchain and some form of distributed ledger and some form of wallet. And that's the real opportunity that you as a wealth manager, you as a financial institution, and you as an end user customer are going to have the net benefit of going forward. Right. Um, I, I want to hone in on a few points that you made there. I, as I mentioned from the beginning of this conversation, CFI, DeFi, very fascinating. Now, I, I feel like we've, we've seen a bit of decentralization even from the wealth space, particularly during the pandemic, when you had this onslaught of investors that were opening up uh, independent brokerage accounts, right? They, instead of going to an advisor, they wanted to try it themselves. Now, you can say that was partly attributed by, you know, boredom because they're just home all day and there's not much else going on, so why not try to manage your finance? But I do believe that um, the retail investor does have staying power. So just because we are returning to normal does not mean that they're completely giving up control of that. There seems to be a very, you know, a, a very sort of a passion almost for wanting to get away from these central authorities and having everything centralized in one place to be able to do things for yourself. Um, and I feel that as far as wealth advisors go, it's important to understand that and to be able to play a role within that where you may have a client who has accounts, let's say with a discount brokerage somewhere, who want to manage some of their own money, but what value can you provide to them? What can you do to, for instance, help them manage their money better with a, a discount brokerage, you know, an account that they want to run themselves? Or um, so what can you give them? Can, is it possible for you to sort of have, uh, you know, create this balance where it's okay for them to have this uh, individual account, but also have some assets with you, and what can you, you know, what, what can you provide them, and what kind of uh, guidance can you give them in order for them to be able to maintain something on their own, but also making sure that, you know, they're not going 
they're just they're not bursting on that side, right? Like they're not when things get really crazy. When uh, as we're seeing right now with crazy amounts of inflation, uh, a lot of volatility in the markets. How can you educate and aid those clients without the goal of it being for you to try to get those assets? Because I feel like when advisors come in with a very strong pitch in order to consolidate assets, it can be a bit transparent um, and it can you know, sort of turn off individual investors. Yeah, so I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, investors are wanting choice, right? And I think uh, entrepreneurs and financial institutions and technology development will ultimately give the best choice for a client. I also think if you look at like the Ubers of the world and the Airbnbs of the world, there's a lot of uh, uh, disruptive technologies that are coming into space that are taking away from the traditional, uh, I'll call it the traditional business lines or siloed uh, opportunities. And I think that's not going to stop. I think clients are demanding uh, their own choice. Where I think advisors are going to be value added is A, through blockchain and technology development and instantaneous uh, accounts. What I mean by instantaneous accounts, you will not need to have a trust agent anymore. You will not need to have long, in-depth uh, KYC and KYB processes. You will not need to have kind of that mid-office and back-office because the uh, atomic nature of the smart contracts that are developed on a peer-to-peer -peer relationship, me being the peer consumer, you being the peer advisor, are all going to come into fruition on the contractual relationship with your advisory business. So when a client says, I want an exposure, you are going to have the ability as an advisor to give them ultimate discretion on whether they want to go back to traditional equity markets and participate because that's their belief system in, in a corporate entity that is raising capital and is trading on a public market, on the secondary market. Or they may want to say to themselves, you know what, from a sovereignty perspective, I'd rather hold those assets in my own wallet and I might have uh, a security, a security token that represents that company and that to me has a, a greater uh, ability for myself. And I think the advisor itself is going to have to be amendable that their own business practices are going to change from just an allocation of a portfolio, but really about what is the lifestyle their end consumer is going into, what area of their life they are at, whether they're just coming out of school, right? Whether they are now in their career, uh, whether they're now a consultant. And as we've seen just in the last few years, this mass resignation. And what does that mean? It's not that people are working less. They're just working for themselves more. And they want to have the fluidity to work from anywhere and not be bound by borders. 
So you're seeing more and more corporations, larger corporations saying, look, I still want that expertise on my side of that corporation, inside the corporation, but I'm willing and able, because of just the way the world is now, through cloud computing and through banking facilitation, that you can work in Dubai and represent a Canadian company. You can work in um, the Cayman Islands. You can work off hours, right, in um, Hawaii, right, so that you have your full day, but yet your working hours may be from 2 a.m. to 9 a.m. And uh, there actually may be more productivity because, you know, corporations are now looking at keystrokes. They're looking at your activity level through your, your laptops and your phones. And what I've seen in hiring over 300 people over the last few years, the productivity level, although changes, the output level uh, is much more efficient. And I think we're going to get more on people using Oculuses and VRs and IRs that the whole office, like we are today in, a, in a, this room, well, you might actually virtually be in Dubai today, but we look and feel like we're in the same office because we're on an Oculus. Uh, we may transfer information utilizing uh, Google's you know, uh, SaaS base or sorry, uh, cloud base uh, computing. So when we share a document, we're working on it together. That submission of that document might go to the contractual side to your client and they'll sign immediately and the funding versus what it was in, in traditional finance might be immediate because they have uh, a stable coin. And a stable coin is packed by a US dollar. And that contractual relationship is fully released at the moment. So there isn't a 60-day or 90-day lag on payments. And I think the ecosystem and purchasing power and your credit facilitation of who you are as a person and as a business is going to be a lot more finite in understanding. Most times it was done on an actuarial base, right? So when you looked at a community in Toronto, you would actually design what the risk is of an accident, right? Of your car, the probability of you being in a car driving on an average base of 60 miles an hour. Well, guess what? You know, those insurance companies are now able to track, to, track on your phone. You press on the pedal and you're speeding through the city and you can give up the rights of your privacy, of your information, they'll lower your rates. If you're going through the city at a high rate of speed, guess what? Next year, your rates have, are going to go up. And they're not using a group system. They're actually just using you as their, or their, their understanding of risk to your propensity. Um, and all of those things are happening now. And what's going to happen is more and more of you is going to be analyzed, not a group of you, not an area of you, and certainly not a corporation of you. Um, yeah, that, that was great. You said a lot of 
really interesting things there, and I want to unpack a few of the points you made. So I sort of want to start off with the point you made around instantaneous account openings to the point where you don't have this comprehensive KYC process anymore. I mean, uh, as someone who worked in the industry, that sounds amazing. I think, you know, uh, administration is a very big burden on advisory teams. So if there's a way to reduce or eliminate it, like everyone will be completely for that because that is now less time that they are spending on activities that don't really add value, right? Administration, I see it as sort of just a necessity. It's not anything that adds value, really. Um, so how would that sort of work? Like, how would you just be able to have an account, have it open right away, and just have very limited KYC? Uh, I, I suppose I'm trying to understand it a bit more, and from a regulatory perspective as well. So we all have now, uh, when you come to Canadian birth, you have uh, a SIN number that is assigned to you. Uh, you have a passport that is assigned to you as a Canadian citizen. Uh, once you turn a certain age, you can acquire a, a bank account. And the minute you turn 16 and 18, you're now available to credit and credit facilitation. You get a credit rating. All of those things, uh, at some point, you will have the opportunity through a blockchain organization uh, to give up your identifiable rights uh, and that token will be you. And so when you go to uh, a brokerage versus you going through, you know, 10 pages of KYC documentation, that token, which would be on your phone through your wallet, would be your basically thumbprint or your digital digital you, and that can't be changed because every time you do something, your blockchain will add that information. And once you have the availability to say to yourself, okay, from the scarcity of who you are, and you think of you as good credit, or you want good credit, or you want an account, you will basically give up that digital information that will be pre-populated It'll be validated because the blockchains are are, are lifetime, and your relationship with your advisor will be simply you coming into the office, and it's being validated that that is you, and all the mid office and back office of understanding the suitability of you as a client, because it's tracking your financial uh, uses. It's tracking your payroll submissions. It's tracking your daily call contribution. We'll give you a credit rating and a, a worthiness of your KYB. And that will ultimately lessen the burden for an advisor because he will have all that information. When, when you go into an advisor, you give it up and as your information. You say to yourself, hey, advisor A, I'd love for you to be my advisor. Okay, well, how much is your investable assets today? And you'll give them an, a roundabout number. Okay, how long have you been investing for? You, well, I've been doing it since I was 21. How long have you been in your last job? I've been there for five years. Okay, I'm now going to create a portfolio for you. And, and I think you're going to see with the blockchain, 
that all of those things that you just described are actually going to be on the chain for them to take in in a very, you know, it's not like it's readily available. It's not like it's anyone can have it. It's you having the authority to say, yes, I'm willing to give this up. Uh, and uh, they'll move forward in the re- orchestration of what their portfolio management will be for you. That's uh, something that I'm going to have to think about a lot because it sounds really amazing. Uh, it's fascinating. So I suppose the well, our think future about, is tokenization. Think, think about what's happened over the last two years. Practically, or majority of Canadians now have QR-coded themselves from a medical perspective. They know that you've had either two or three shots, right? Right. You've given up that right, and every time you go to the airport, you go and through a Rive can, you've given up your passport information, your medical information, and your whereabouts because they're tracking through the location services, right? Right. All of those things now can be diarized and summarized on a blockchain. It's fully encrypted. It's not like anyone can see it. You have the ultimate right of forwarding that to the possibility of getting better rate of returns, the possibility of getting a lower uh, insurance possibility, the possibility of getting better health care, right? I, I love my Apple Watch, right? I sign up for the, the health uh, app, right? I now can forward my health app, which is checking my, my blood pressure, it's checking my heart rate, uh, my oxygen level. I've, my, my doctor said, hey, why don't you send that over to me so I can know how well you're, you're doing over the last few months. Uh, you go to Vaughan Medical now, or in the city of Vaughan, or you go to the city of Toronto, you have my charts, so that every doctor now knows what prescriptions you're on, what, um, if you had a CT scan or MRI, it's you having the availability to push that forward. It's not, they're, they're not taking it without your, your approval, but it will bring in a level of efficiency and truth and transparency because as, as I said at the very first statement, the blockchain is a block that's impenetrable. You cannot change the past. It's a value contribution to the next value to the next value. And all the blocks verify and validate that every single day of every single moment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's truly fascinating. And I, I find it really interesting. But what you mentioned in there around you having control of your data and you passing it along uh, based on your needs and what will be good for you, it, you know, it reminds me of open banking, open finance. So I feel like there's a very um, compatible relationship here with the two because open finance is all about you having the rights over your data and giving it to institutions as you see fit for you to get the appropriate product for you. And so now to have that combined and have all that data on the blockchain, which you ultimately control. And you know, the way you make it sound, it's, it's very futuristic. You know, we're, we're all gonna be tokens, represented by a token at least, where our entire existence is pretty much on the chain. Everything that anyone needs to know about us is listed on there. And we pass this information as we need to. 
Yeah, I mean, look at okay, look at uh, Amazon right now. Okay, so I'm a, a Prime member, and Amazon app right now. If I go into uh, their stores, which they now have unmanned stores in Seattle, it was a test case. But if I go into their, um, what's the acquisition that they did? The, I forget what it's called. The, it's one of their, <laughs> it's like it's like Loblaws, but they. Uh, oh, Whole Foods. Whole Foods. Yeah. Right? So I can use my Prime Services account or from Amazon to make payments. They know that they we're in. I, and the minute I go within 50 meters of that location, you'll see a, a whole bunch of pop-ups to that to entice you to go there. Uh, you can barcode everything now. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of efficiencies that you're going to say to yourself, I want or need, and these applications are going to actually have the best part, which is the value contribution on top of just the knowledge contribution, right? So the Web3 is is the value contribution to it all. Right. So, you know, that's, that's a good point. And that sort of makes me think about data. So right now, I am also a Prime member, and Amazon knows far too much about me to the point that they know what I need before I even need it, right? Uh, if they know exactly what my shopping patterns are and what kind of products I order, and they'll give me deals on it. But they can do all of that because they have data on me. So once all my information is on the blockchain and controlled by me, how will corporations still be able to gather all that data? Well, at the end of the day, you have the ultimate right to enter into the terms and services and agreements that if you give up that information, they're to give you a, a net benefit, right? Before it was, we're going to give you free Wi-Fi or we're going to give you free Google search. But the reality was is they weren't sharing in that economical share of your data. My assumption is that more and more people are going to say, well, you know what? I'm giving you some value for my information. I want some form of loyalty or tokenization to me for that effort or some discount or, you know, uh, you know, the ability to go to some events because I am giving you majority of my effort to you. And the blockchain and tokenization uh, and the utilization of that will happen. Because you're going to say to yourself, why am I going to Google and doing Google search there and not getting anything back? Even content people, right? Uh, podcasts. You know, they're trying to monetize it as best as they, they can. I think ultimately people are going to say, for all efforts that I'm contributing to, I want to monetize. And uh, your, your wallet facilitation, your digital wallet, your digital identity, uh, your asset mix, all of that, it used to be siloed, right? So if I wanted to do an allocation with fixed income, I would get a fixed income instrument. If I wanted to do a equity, I would do an equity instrument. If I wanted to buy a hard asset like a house, I would get my contractual title, right? If I entered into a contractual term with a, buying some sofas or chairs, 
you know, you would get a bill of service or a bill of goods, right? All of those things, and I mean all, over the next 20 years will be digitized. And it will be your total purchasing power from a lifetime perspective. And that total purchasing power, if you look at uh, high-priced goods and services like Louis Vuitton and Adidas and um, you name it, they've had major fraud, right? There's, you know, I can get a fake Rolex anytime I want going down Canal Street. Or I can get, uh, you know, a piece of clothing that looks like Gucci, smells like Gucci, but they didn't actually, you know, manufacture it. Well, my assumption is that an NFT process will be embedded in that process to legitimize their goods and services. So when I buy those expensive Easy's or Airfolder Swans, there's a most likely you're going to see a barcode, a QR code, or some affirmation that you bought the real item. And then when you want to go and trade it on the secondary market, or you want to sell it, or even just want to know where it is, because you maybe lost them, you'll have a functionality ability for that with an NFT. Yeah. Because they're non-functional. And what's going to happen is in the Bateman household, when I have two kids and a lovely wife, all of the items that you purchase over a history that you know get accumulated back into your garage at the end of the day uh, can be garage sold on Facebook markets as real items. You purchased it at $80. You now have the NFT purchase valuation. You have maybe even some depreciation. And you sell that good, they can verify that that good is true. And I think those are the kinds of things that we're going to see not in 50 or 100 years now, but in the next 5 and 10 years. Because the level of, it's kind of like Metcalf's law, right? The, evol the level of evolution and release of product releases are going far greater in speed than the traditional marketplaces that we used to have. Right? We can trade goods and services now on dozens of applications. We can buy goods and services and get them to our house within hours now. Two hours, I can get my food now, right? Yeah. And NFTs are another really exciting space. And, you know, you mentioned they're coming soon. I think they're sort of already here in, a, in some ways. Uh, in Ontario, for instance, there's been talk about um, having digital driver's license. Right, so, and I think that's a great case for an NFT. I was at a conference uh, recently and we had Rick Edelman speak there. And he was talking about converting your home into an NFT. So imagine you have a home that's worth, let's say 500,000. So you create 500,000 tokens for NFT out of it. And then you sell them off. And as the price of your home appreciates, you know, a person A who's holding five tokens worth five dollars now their five tokens appreciate as well or their nft however you want to phrase it and i think it's really interesting you're combining that now with the financial market and it just opens up a whole new possibility uh, of things it's going to open up a massive possibility of things at the end of the day and, and this is just my theory of the world i'm this is not a 
a CGI-supported theory or, or anyone else. This is my theory. I think ultimately, as you've seen uh, with the past, I think since 2008, governments have been flooding the markets system with free cash, right? Uh, surpluses of cash flow. And what has that done? It's devalued the U.S. dollar demonstrably because there's all this U.S. dollar currency out in the marketplace. And it's devalued your purchasing power just from an inflationary perspective. And But there's still a level of need of buying goods and services on a daily basis. But that requirement of buying goods and services, as we've seen just in the last few months, costs more. But yet your rate of your employment or your rate of payroll or your rate of earned has not been to the rate of inflation or the rate of CPI or the rate of cost. And what does that mean? It means that you need to gain credit. Your overall who you are is going to be your purchasing power. So it's going to look at the sum of Lewis and saying, okay, Lewis is worth, and I'm just being facetious, a million dollars because he's got a house, like you said, was worth $500,000. He's got very expensive easies that he can sell on a secondary market. He makes $100,000 a year, so that's his con contribution. And he's got all these other little things, investments, RSP program, and all that what's going to happen is the total sum of Lewis is going to be a number, okay? And you are going to have the ability to either fractionalize that, like you said, and through not an NFT because that's a non-fungible token, but through a token and say, look, I'm willing to sell a part of Lewis Bateman. You're going to give me cash value for that on the opportunity cost of either the future or my opportunity cost of buying something now. And that's really what's going to happen. The other side is when I go into a Starbucks, right, and we're seeing this even more, uh, Tim Hortons in Canada or, or any kind of cafe, what you're seeing now is a, a QR code where I load up some, some form of cash payment. They take that cash payment and I get my, my coffee. Well, that loading up is not going to be traditional dollars anymore. It's not going to be the Canadian dollar. It's not going to be the U.S. dollar. It's just going to be the Lewis Bateman contribution, the fractional ownership of Lewis Bateman. In the conversion, you're going to get a Starbucks dollar. You're going to get a Tim Hortons dollar. And then Tim Hortons is going to allocate all the, the monies as treasury and either pay off their clients from a vendor perspective or they're going to pay off their employees or their goods and services or they're going to allocate to their corporate tax. That is truly where the market is going. Right. It's uh, pretty much the securitization of individuals. Correct. Uh, which is a really uh, another really interesting way of looking at it. Um, I do want to shift back a little bit. We were speaking about DeFi and sci-fi, and we you know, spoke a lot about decentralization. But you brought up... Uh, the markets um, being flooded with QE, for instance, right? A lot of money printing happening. So let's speak a big, bit about centralized finance. So I know, for instance, that uh, there pretty much every major country's uh, central bank has been talking about 
a digital token, right? So now instead of me having a loony, I'll have a digital loony. Um, I, I know it's, it's a topic that really fascinates me. So I've done, I've been following it for a while, done some research, and it, it seemed to me like I believe China is sort of ahead of the curve on it. They were the closest to introducing it. But I sort of want to get your take on when we might see a centralized currency from you know, one of the Western nations. Uh, in Canada, for instance, when can I just have a digital wallet with my Canadian dollars and use that instead of you know, having a classical a debit card or credit card or what have you? Yeah, I don't, I don't know when that's going to happen. You know, uh, when Mark Carney was with the Bank of England, he was talking about creating some form of stablecoin pegged to the, uh, the pound. Uh, and certainly, I think the U.S. is contemplating something. It takes a lot of effort to kind of do that. You do have these uh, companies like Circle and Tether that have... Um, peg dollars or, or digital coins or stable coins that are out there for uh, what I would call uh, trading and settlement or clearing and settlement of uh, counterparties in a digital form. Um, I don't see that stop. Uh, I do think there are going to be governments and centralized governments or sovereign funds that are going to want to create their own version of currency in the marketplace. Um, but who does it first or how it's done, I don't know necessarily even the consumer cares because what happened is uh, the consumer cares about the existence of money transfer, the valuation of money transfer. And as long as it is, is an accepted peer that's willing to take that counterparty transaction, what's inside of it or how it's manifested really doesn't matter. Canada is one of the most uh, used uh, electronic currency trading relationships, right? 67 or 70%. We all use Interact every single day. There's very little actual fiat that's transferred. It's just debits and credits between banking relationships and their vendor parties for goods and services. I don't know when the last time I actually carried more than $100 in my wallet. Um, so the use case is already there. How we do it, whether we use um, a stable coin, whether we use a debit card system, uh, you, you're seeing that all throughout. It's really about the remittance and the global aspects. Localization, I don't think is a really big concern. It's I, I work here today. Maybe I want to work in Florida tomorrow. Maybe I want to work in the Cayman Islands, to, you know, and having that, uh, that FX rate or that currency rate um, uh, and the ability to transact immediately is really the opportunity. So looking at that payment processing is, is more of the critical nature of the... Uh, um, where digitization is going to go. Right. Well, I think what is clear is that it's digital is the world, right? Regardless of whether it's a 
centralized token that's pegged to something, or if you know perhaps we do just end up adopting something like a tether, um, that that's you know a very popular stablecoin. I, I also want to speak about something that you mentioned in your in your intro, and that was the evolution. So. Um, when I look at it, so if I look at cryptocurrencies, for instance, you you had Bitcoin, um, and then after Bitcoin, you had uh, some other smaller coins, and you had Ethereum. And with with Bitcoin, there was no like, uh, smart contracting technology, right? So if you and I, for instance, if you had tickets, and I was going to buy your tickets with my Bitcoins, I could send you my Bitcoin, and you didn't have to send me your ticket, and I it, my Bitcoin was gone, it's out of my wallet, and I had like no recourse essentially. Um, and that was, you know, a, a vulnerability in that system. And then along came uh, Batlick from Toronto and he created Ethereum with smart contracting where we both now had an obligation. So I knew that I would, when my Ethereum coins go out to you, I would for sure, you know, let's say get your tickets. Um, so I, I, I find that really fascinating is that the market is able to handle any of these vulnerabilities or issues or you know shortfalls or gaps that that do arise as with any technology you're always going to have some issue and then it gets fixed as it gets utilized it gains in popularity so i want to get your take on you know some of these coins that we have and just how their protocols are being used outside of just the crypto world so ethereum with their smart chain technology. Um, another interesting one is Cardano um, and some of the work that they've been doing in Africa with actually helping their financial system, but also, uh, you know, um, helping professors, for instance, track the progress of their students during the pandemic when people could not be in the classroom together. How, like, what kind of use cases are, are you seeing out there and where do you think we ultimately go with some of this technology that has been the outcome of these cryptos? It's a big, broad question, <laughs> and I'll unpack to the best of my ability. I think everyone has been asking over the last 15 years, what are the use cases of both the blockchain and digital asset forms? Whether it be uh, cryptocurrencies, whether it be tokenization uh, from a securitization perspective, or whether it be from a uh, uh, a loyalty coin or, or an affirmation of information. And all of those things are being developed as, as needed. And what I mean by that is that demand and supply are basic understandings of economics, right? And so the demand is I need to transfer monies to client A because I want to buy a ticket to that event like you gave. And so there was an understanding of what that escrow portion would be needed or what was that contract validation would be needed. And so there was a development. Then there's like, okay, what can I do with that contract? Well, you know what? I can take my title of my house, digitize that title ship, and let's say I do want to take some money off the table. I can fractionalize that and sell portions of a token saying you own one-tenth of my title ship to my house. And for that, I get fiat, or I get whatever the case may be. Uh, from your example of medical, you know, the charting of someone can be digitized now. 
And that transfer of charting information can go from into your wallet. And if you go to some other location around the world, and if they're able to, to read off a QR code, they can see your charts and your information of you. All of these use cases are to break down one, three basic things in my mind. Time, cost, and transparency. All right, so what I mean by that is when you look at C5 versus D5, right, there was a centralization of information or, or transfer agent that would hold both parties accountable and then release, right? There was a depository company that would hold the assets in a physical nature and do the accounting of that. And all of those things would take a settlement process. Two days, one day, five days, depending on where they are in the world. And there's a level of cost each way through, right? Everyone's taking a little piece of their, their efforts. With the blockchain, A, time uh, is pretty much eliminated because all it is is waiting for the next validation and verification on the chain that the, that communication or that transaction or that verification of information has done and it's perpetual. So it's immediate. Value, it's an atomic swap or smart contract, it's immediate. So the cost of doing it is, is lowered because you don't have transfer agent, you don't have a custody agent, you don't have any of those things. And then I go back to the transparency. So the transparency is critical, right? You need to validate where it is. Everyone kind of gets, you know, angry about hacks and attacks and, and all these things. But blockchain's wallets are tracked. All the money flows are tracked. They, they, they don't disappear. If they come back on chain or off chain, that is still validated, right? They know exactly how many Bitcoins are in the system. They know exactly where all of the coins are. Whether they're being in a cold wallet, that wallet is still validated. If it comes out of that wallet and it goes back on chain, you know where it came from. The anonymous part is who owns that wallet and where does that wallet facilitate it from. Mm -hmm. Those things are the detective work that needs to still be done. But the actual money flows, we all know that at the end of the cycle, there will only be 21 million coins available, right? For Bitcoin. For Bitcoin. Yes. I'm just trying to use that as a use case example. Yeah. We even know if even if there was another coin offering, right, if they were to increase the, the supply, you would know what that supply amount is to the finite or to the, to the decimal point or to the circulation point. Right. There, there's a lot of transparency and data integrity. I don't know how many U.S. dollars are truly out there today. I, have, I think very few people have that knowledge. Exactly. So I, I completely get your point on that. I, so it, it's a secure system. Um, you know, again, a lot of data integrity. And it very, I know there's been like, you know, some so-called hacks in the past. But again, everything's very trackable the blockchain is immutable. So once something has happened, no one can just go in and, you know, sort of mess with the ledger and change something to, for it to be what it's not. I suppose the other, when I think about this, I also think about advisors and their role. So we've, 
um, we recently did a survey, well, earlier this year, our Voice of the Advisor survey, and in it, we asked them, you know, topics or things that uh, clients were asking about, like, what are some of the, like, the top three things that you're being asked about? Cryptocurrencies were up there, right? It's something that uh, they're, they're everywhere, clients are very well aware of them, they see, you know, that 20x uh, gain in a very short time, and they want to be a part of it. Uh, for advisors, you know, it's sort of an area of, of uncertainty, especially if you're an advisor who's been in the industry for decades. Uh, you've become used to doing things a certain way. And, you know, change for anyone can be scary, but particularly when it's your business and when you've done something a certain way and it's worked very well, it's very difficult to now change that process and to introduce, you know, sort of this new asset class. Um, I was having a conversation with someone recently about this, uh, and he said something really interesting, and that is, you know, even though Bitcoin is struggling right now, advisors should never be, at, you know, be the ones to saying, I told you so, because at the end of the day, what did you really tell your clients about it? You know, besides the fact that this was something new, you weren't sure, it made you uncomfortable. Um, and uh, when I look at all of this, I sort of compare it to the, the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s. I mean, I was too young to have actually, you know, observed the whole thing. Um, but I, what I will say is that, based on my understanding of it, you, the internet remained. So even though all those um, different businesses that were on there that crashed, I think like pet.com was one of them, it, 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 the underlying foundation, which was the internet, it's what we use now. It, it never went away. And that's sort of how I view blockchain, and yes, there are you know some bad coins out there. There, there's a lot of speculation. There's coins that you know don't have much behind them, except they're just trying to be a part of the hype. But I go back to, if you want to play very safe, what will last? And to me, the thing that will last is the blockchain. So even if you don't want to invest in, let's say, a crypto fund or cryptocurrencies directly, you can invest in companies that are in the blockchain space or companies that enable investors to you know, uh, buy different cryptos. Like uh, it might be a platform, it might be a firm that you know, creates um, different technology to enable crypto. So what would your advice be for advisors on how they should look at all of this? Uh, so my advice is, uh as every advisor needs to know, is know the parameters of what their client is trying to achieve, right? So understanding the client and what is their spectrum from a asset allocation perspective, timeline perspective, uh, what is their knowledge base? Don't put someone into something that is speculative. Don't put someone, It's this isn't gambling, right? This is holding an asset and understanding what the validation of that asset is and what the verification of that asset is. And what is the true outcome of that asset? And it's multiple assets. So I'll give you my thought process. Um, you know, 35, 40 years ago, uh, there wasn't, there was traditional mutual funds. And you're saying to yourself, okay, I'm willing to give up a contribution level and I'll give it over to a portfolio manager. And that portfolio manager understands an asset mix or an equity mix that will hopefully give me a rate of return. And for that rate of return, you're gonna give them a fee, okay? And that was in a, uh, a structured product. 
Okay. That structured product manifested into a, a, a public product, a public structured product, which was an exchange traded funds. First, it was in a passive investment, i.e., I wish to get broad exposure on the TSX 60 or the S&P 500, or as it evolved, it would be on oil or gas or on a commodity, gold, or on a fixed income instrument. And the delivery mechanism was the ETF. It was just a contractual prospectus saying, I'm willing, the company being the asset manager, to give you an exposure, I'll hold the underlying exposure, you will own a fractional amount of that exposure, and we'll deliver you an outcome. And in my mind, that was actually the precursor of what even the blockchain is. Because what happened in that time period is we kind of uh, bifurcated and took away all these siloed asset allocated tools into one unified delivery mechanism, which was the ETF. Now we're saying, you know what, I don't even need the ETF. I'm willing to do it on a, on a sovereignty or person perspective and take a digital coin into my own wallet. I don't need someone else to do it on my behalf. Where I think a wealth or advisor can add value is the selection process, the verification process, and really working with the regulators, and I am a big advocate of the Ontario Securities Commission, the CSA guidelines, the SEC's efforts, but what they need to do from a regulatory perspective is seeing all the kind of bureaucracy and making sure that there's an efficiency model that is brought out on the documentation of regulatory policies and procedures. That's their effort, contribution. The effort contribution on an advisor is to say, okay, I see all these different asset classes, and now there's this new digital asset class. How do I allocate appropriately to you? You're a young individual who didn't live through, you know, the dot-com period. I did. How do I know which is the right company through that dot-com period to select? You know, before there was... Uh, you know, Facebook, there was MySpace, right? And there's going to be an evolution, right? There is going to be Bitcoin. I don't know necessarily Bitcoin is going to be the only uh, stored value coin or digital asset for the future. There might be something else. Why do I say that? Well, it was initially brought out you know, in 2011, 2012, right? It has a level of cost from a construction or minting of that coin or hash rate. There's a level of cost from a transactability perspective and time. It's not that, you know, it takes time to do each block. So does, does a company like Cordero, Avalanche, Solana, Stellar, those foundational Ripple may come with lower gas fees lower hash rate production, uh, facilitation might be better, on-chain and off-chain uh, results might be better. All of those things are going to come through this development over the next 10, 15 years. It took us 25 years to get to a trillion dollars in the ETF market, right? It only took us four 
or five to get us to a trillion dollars in the in the digital asset space. Right. Before we go further, um, can you explain gas fees? Because I'm sure people have heard of them, but not everyone might be familiar with what they are. So gas fees, hash rates, all of these things are the, we'll call it the transactional cost of moving the digital asset between two parties or two peers. And depending on supply and demand and the curve of what how much is going on on the blockchain at any one time, they associate a fee. I, I kind of equate it in very layman's terms is you have a base rate at Uber to drive a car from, from one street to the next. Now there's really only a limited supply of that car or there's lots of traffic in the marketplace. They put a surge pricing in it. And that, that gas fee is that surge effort um, that is associated with this. So if you're buying something with Ethereum that might cost you, you know, $100, and you're buying, let's say, an NFT, right, an ER, through an ERC-20 token, you also have to know what the transactional rate or gas fee to do that next level of blockchain validation and verification. And that gas fee is part of that. Right. Makes sense. Um, it's There's a lot here, but I suppose it would be good to speak a bit more about blockchain and enterprises. So recently, uh, in preparing for this chat with you, I went over to our emerging technologies folks, and I sort of asked them a bit about it, because um, as folks who consume this podcast know, I am no techie. So, uh, but I'm very fascinated by the space, so I try to learn as much as I can about it. And I was very happy to learn that, um, you know, at CGI, we're looking to form relation global partner relationships essentially with different startups and you know we're trying to stay on top of this technology on top of the trends that are occurring and I believe you know a big reason for that is because there is so much enterprise interest in this area um, as you know we have a lot of large firms as our clients and so we're always looking to meet their needs and so if there is this type of effort being spent on staying on top of this segment of the industry what it tells me is that that is where everyone's headed. As you know, you mentioned earlier with all the things that can be done on the blockchain, um, it's definitely our future and there is a lot of value there and firms are seeing that value and so they now wanna shift over to the blockchain. And so my question would be, how painful or you know unpainful <laughs> will that journey be to go from some traditional legacy infrastructure onto the blockchain? Uh, so, in my belief, it doesn't bring a level of pain. It brings a level of understanding. And I'll equate this to everyone gets used to what they know. And once they know it, they don't want to break down and learn something new. So, financial institutions have a real opportunity here to say to themselves, okay, what are the levels of efficiency that we can take and increase performance. So if it's mid-office KYC and AML efforts, there might be an internalized blockchain that can help in that efficiency. Uh, if it's uh, broadening the offerings, 
So maybe it's not through contractual terms, but through smart contracts. So it's really more about level of understanding that financial institutions we need to gain and not have a predisposed belief of what blockchain or digital assets or cryptocurrency are, but truly find firms like CGI that are trying to take a leadership position in, have the proper consultancy and advocacy for it, and really saying to ourselves, what are the deficiencies we have in the marketplace that we can bring value and where we can bring uh, better execution? And not just execution on trade, but execution on uh, data, execution on system softwares, uh, utilizing APIs, uh, maybe white labeling service offerings that weren't traditionally your, your primary revenue, but because you have a large client portfolio, there might be other offerings where you can get reciprocation or referral fees. Um, you know, and I think those are the kinds of conversations that large financial institutions need to start broadening themselves. I think there's a whole entire generation now, especially with uh, COVID and just utilization of phones and technology, that people are not necessarily going into bricks and mortar anymore to get their services or their goods. So how do you, as a financial institution, especially in Canada, allow for that access? How do you broaden through open banking? How do you broaden through neo-banking? How do you offer what would be traditionally centralized securitization on a Canadian marketplace for price discovery when the reality is, is that you have large global now exchanges for price discovery? So you're going to see you know, the Binances of the world, the FTXs of the world, these are the large digital asset providers or digital cryptocurrency exchanges. They're not just going to offer cryptocurrencies as a service. They're going to offer payments and merchant services. They're going to offer invoicing. They're going to offer traditional equities in a digital form. All of them have talked about this. So how do you compete locally against a global player? How do you offer a consumer that is not going to be localized anymore and going to be wanting to work around the world? These are the real questions that I think CGI, their consultancy group, the technologies that they're building can help with financial institutions properly orchestrate themselves over the next three to five years and putting in those plans. Absolutely. And that globalization aspect of it is really interesting because as you mentioned, um, Binance, which is a huge player out of the US, they, you know, I think it's been for a while now, um, I checked in with them probably last year, but they were looking at adding some ETFs onto their platform. So they, you have these large players that have a lot of retail attention because you have a lot, everyone, you know, wanting to be a part of it. And so far they've had to do it on their own because there really hasn't been a large, you know, institutional player in the space who allows people to go in and just, you know, trade in any crypto that they want, have a digital wallet. So now to see these players say, okay, we're not, you know, we don't want to just remain in that area, in the area of crypto. We want to sort of take over the whole market. And we have the infrastructure to do it, so why not? So you're 
to your point, there is now a need for these more traditional players to add value to now have these different offerings on their platforms. And you can go beyond crypto and even have different alternative offerings. As we're seeing right now, there is a hunger for alternatives given the inflation rates, given the current market uh, environment. So I, I think there's you know, a lot that still needs to happen in that space and a lot of possibilities. Um, I know that you know, out of my conversation with the emerging technologies folks, when I asked about uh, wallets, um, you know, I learned that we, of course, have partnerships with many different firms and we're an expert in centralized wallets. So once you have that infrastructure set up, it is, there is still you know, a fair bit of work that needs to be done to now move that model to decentralization, but it's very possible if you have the background and expertise. And as you mentioned, we, we do have a consulting group that's very involved in the space um, and we're happy to help our clients in any way that we can. But if I sort of, you know, shift back a bit, one of the th large um, concerns, again, and we touched on this before, is, is around the security and also the regulation once you go global. So if I can now, you know, using this one platform, go and let's say trade Samsung, you know, like actual like homegrown Samsung stock out of Korea, what does that look like? And what kind of regulation needs to be in place for that to happen? I know in Canada, you know, we're very fortunate with our regulators because they have seen the benefit of cryptocurrencies, for instance, um, and that's why we're, we're one of the lead players in terms of crypto offerings. So we, you know, we've had more ETFs than the U.S. has. We were ahead of them in that trend, um, and we're also just allowing for a lot more exposure for retail investors, and I think Part of that is also sort of an ethical question where is it right to keep the mass market away from opportunities that can yield the types of returns that crypto can? Um, so I would love to get your take on the globalization of aspect of it and on how regulation would work. Okay, so uh, from a globalization perspective, I think there are very large players that are in this space. I'm not going to name specific ones because they all have their 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 own um, dialogues. But from a from a from an understanding perspective and being in the space, I think the ones that are going to win or or work are the ones that are working in uh, developing um, policies and procedures that are aligned with local registrations and local regulators. So if it acts like a duck, smells like a duck, it is a duck. Um, and so you cannot uh, operate or you should not operate without full disclosures. You have common law that you need to follow and you have regulatory and regulatory understanding that you need to support. And I'm fundamentally believe in that from just a fiduciary responsibility and a good actor or reputational risk. Uh, I think the OSC, the CSA, uh, IROC, all the kind of the self-regulators, the regional, provincial regulators are all working in concert to understand that this is a very fast developing space 
Uh, they've built, you know, uh, sandboxes to work in or under. They've built uh, ways for direct communication. And I think the leaders in each one of these exchanges, global exchanges, leaders in payments processing and even traditional finance need to come together and say to ourselves, how do we give you the transparency that you need so that Mama McGillicuddy in Saskatoon or in Kansas are not approached by bad actors or bad facilitation? Because at the end of the day, what you've seen just most recently uh, in the space, you have to do what you say you're going to do. You have to be transparent with your audits. You have to be transparent with your counterparties. You have to be transparent with the technology that you're utilizing. You also have to have the proper funding and funding formulas so that if there is a downturn or if there is a manifestation of uh, a change in the marketplace, you have enough strength, operating capital, policies and procedures, uh, risk uh, mitigation that you don't affect the general consumer. And I think what you're going to see not in a long distance future perspective, but in a very short term, regulators, uh, financial departments, even taxation are gonna get more and more entangled with these new burgeoning companies as to properly uh, preparing, documenting and submitting. And that's where I think CGI has a benefit of their knowledge and history. I think that's where Regulators have a benefit because they can say, here's what a prescribed policy and procedures that we think is appropriate under national instruments. And I think we as a community uh, need to be better in understanding what is the historical of big changes in the world. Um, and ultimately what's gonna come out of, the, out of this is you're gonna have stronger companies more transparent companies and companies that are willing to work with not only the consumer but with regulators, politicians, and officials. And what's going to happen uh, ultimately, and I'm not, I don't think this is a, a bad guess, but I think you're going to have more of a unified global position on certain way of transacting. Uh, certain asset allocations, certain tokens that IOSCO, uh, which is more of the global regulator, uh, the SEC, uh, the U.S. administration, British administration, Germany administration, Canadian administration, are all going to come together and say, look, we have this global situation here where you have global players transacting and... The, the movement of wealth and wealth creation it can come and go out of Canada fairly easily. The movement of wealth and wealth generation can come and go out of the United States. How do we protect ourselves from a taxation perspective, from a governance perspective for clients? All of these things are really gonna come about. And you're seeing that in 
the filings that are happening at the Senate level, you're seeing that in the discussions from Ginsler at the SEC level. You're seeing that in conversations from a you know, provincial in Alberta, in, in Ontario. You're seeing the active participation of the AMF in France and what is happening in Dubai. Everyone knows that this is coming. It's really about how are they dialoguing with the consumer base and how are they going to be dialoguing with the corporate entities that are participating in the space. And I think there has to be a cooperative understanding that everyone has to give up something to get the greater good out of it. Because as you said uh, in your example, this is not going away. It's just how we want to manifest it from a global opportunity perspective. Uh, and it certainly can't be regionalized. You can't give uh, arbitrage from a regulatory standpoint where you give access to one province and not another, or one nation, not another. You can't tax differently. You have to unify certain aspects of this because then people are just going to play against each other and corporations are going to play against each other. And I think that is ultimately how we get to the mass adoption and how do we get to the um, abilities for everyone to benefit from it. Yeah, it sounds like a truly collaborative effort. Um, and while you were speaking, what popped into my head, and then you mentioned it, is taxation. So obviously there's been um, a lot of work put in by governments on taxation frameworks for cryptocurrencies. Um, I believe it was in last year's filings where things really kicked off uh, in the states with uh, how taxation was going to work. But I would love to get your perspective on that. Tax is hard, right? Uh, it's very fluid and very complicated. It's in the United States, it's, you know, thousands and thousands of tax legislation code. And you have to have a real understanding of what you are transacting with and who, and is it a responsibility of the consumer to submit their taxation? Is it a responsibility of the corporate entity to submit your taxation? And what I think ultimately you're gonna see is tax codes uh, need to uh, become uncomplicated. And there's, there's two things that I know are true. One is land, right? We know the total circumference of Canada, and we know goods and services. Those are two absolutes. What I don't know is how much you make as a salary and how much you've gained in your capital gains. That's all you reporting in, saying this is what I've done, so now please tax me at that rate. But I do know where you live, and I do know that you're gonna have to buy eggs, milk, and certain basic services. That is an absolute to feed yourself or to orchestrate yourself. And I think as it gets more and more complicated and government, governments need to take in funds to represent the community and to give social benefits, uh, I think the taxation code will simplify. And they'll tax on property and they'll tax on goods and services. And if you have too many people in New York, well, guess what? The way to push people out is increasing property taxes, and the density will suddenly move forward. If you 
That's a very want, effective way of doing it. If you want <laughs> uh, someone to buy goods and services, right, you either increase the cost of services or the cost of goods, right? So they'll save more. The cost of goods go up. If you want to push people into none of it, well, guess what? It's zero taxable rate there, and you will say zero cost of goods, and you get to retain more money. Well, I, I'm pretty sure people will move there. Just as like what you've seen in the United States, this mass exodus out of, out of California and going to Texas or going to Florida. You know, what you're going to see is behavioral modifications through taxation and a simplification. And why do I see that is I think people like myself and people like yourself and working in global companies, you know, you want to work for Google now or you want to work for Apple. They're not limiting you working in, in San Francisco or in Toronto or in uh, London. They're saying, okay, plug and play. You come into our office, you plug your port, you sign up your, your desk. We know you're working there. If you want to move to another city, they're still going to give you the same check. And what the governments are not realizing is that eight expatriates and, and working visas those are the ways to correct fees. Those are the ways to incentivize through Airbnb. It's an absolute. If you're going to rent an, uh, an Airbnb, you tax it appropriately. If you don't want them there, you leave them, right? And I think those are the kinds of things that are going to have to happen over the next 20 to 50 years because the fluidity of people now, the fluidity of information now, and the fluidity now of value transformation or value transfer is now broken down. What is the barrier of entry, right? The barrier of entry is, is, is now guns and weaponry, right? That's the barrier of entry or whether you wish to be there. The barrier of entry now, even in the macro events of Ukraine and Russia, for the first time ever, you're seeing corporations getting involved in the policies of what's happening. It's not just NATO or it's not just one country versus another. Corporations are saying, you know what? You're not doing the benefits of my people that work for me. I'm taking my business out of that jurisdiction until you follow the policies and procedures and guidelines. You know? And I think actually more and more corporations are going to be influential on the policies and procedures of the localized environment that they're in. And I think people are going to determine whether they want to be there or not because they can easily accumulate their assets and leave. Yeah. I, the idea of corporations and politics, I think that's been, that's a shift that's been occurring for a while now. They are definitely getting more involved, um, you know, for what they perceive to be the betterment of society, right? And for their employees and their communities. So it's not a bad move. Um, your idea around using tax to sort of, you know, shift or inform behaviors is really interesting and I do agree with you that in order for this to work, taxation will need to be simplified greatly because with the way it is right now, with different rules, you know, depending on different uh, assets that you may own or where you live, it, it is very complicated. Um, I've actually seen a model in some other countries where they're introducing this idea of the government does your taxes for you based on all the information they collect because we're very digital. So, you know, CGI, for instance, reports my income 
to the Canadian government, so they know what I make. Um, again, same with whenever I transact in my investment accounts, those financial institutions report that activity to the government. Um, that's one of the ways they, you know, for instance, keep track of your TFSA and how much allowable room you have. So when you go onto your CRA My Account, you can actually track and see how much you can, how much you can contribute each year. So from my perspective, the government pretty much has everything. You know, there's very, very few things that they may not know. So this shift towards having them prepare your taxation just so there is no confusion and you know you'll you'll often hear stories about you know there being some conflicted information or something wasn't understood properly or conveyed properly and now it's causing an audit which can be a complete headache so if they're preparing your taxes for you based on because they have all this information that seems like a pretty good process to me and then you would of course review it um, and if there was of course anything wrong you would go ahead and you know have open up a line of communication with them to correct it but i i would bet that for the large majority of people their taxes are pretty simple and it would not be a big burden for you know for there to be sort of an automated tax uh reporting and filing process yeah i mean person's taxes are can be complicated or not complicated and every person's very different you're just working with one employer then and that employer has the ability to submit on your behalf your t4 then certainly it's going to be a two-step process but i also think that you're coming into a world now um, that more and more people are taking their own uh, efforts uh, consultancy advocacy uh, lots of companies are global in nature so they don't have local offices they're just utilizing the you know, the ability to hire people out of Waterloo. There's a whole bunch of engineers that are way cheaper in, in Canada than necessarily the United States, right? Uh, so they don't have a localized office, but the person's able to contractually bill their, their efforts. So it's more about the global nature of their taxation or their corporate tax or where they're actually getting their revenues from that is a level of, uh, a level of effort that, governments are needing to deal with. That I'm saying you probably, because of all this transmission of global movement, that we're gonna have to simplify. That's all I'm trying to say here. Yeah, no, and I completely agree with you on that point, as we do become more globalized. And, you know, we sort of, instead of being, you know, very segregated societies, we're, we're already seeing it with social media, where you'll have you know, people in Canada, for instance, liking something from Germany and vice versa. And so there's already this emergence of, of two. Um, obviously, people want to retain some of their culture and their heritage, which I think is beautiful. And uh, I don't think will ever, you know, be lost. And, and if it was, I would think that would be very sad. But there, there is definitely this move towards globalization. And so how do we have that movement in a very cohesive manner? where things flow properly and you know things don't just get shut down right away. Um, I, for instance, think about the supply chain issues that we've been having um, as of like, you know, given all the stuff with the pandemic, uh, perhaps some of those issues could be alleviated if some of the more modern technologies were implemented, if we, if we had better frameworks, right? Um, we wouldn't run into these issues if uh, some of these things were thought out more and if 
um, you know, different institutions and governments were not wary of investigating newer technologies and implementing them. Look, IoT is going to be a big, massive uh, infrastructure release and build. Uh, utilizing IoT with blockchain is going to allow for breaking down those, um, um, you know, the, the shipping and transporting of goods because you can register your goods and services, the goods that you're transporting through the blockchain as validated, and you don't have that wait in the middle of Vancouver's ocean for six to eight weeks to actually disembark all the goods and services and possibly even rot them. I think all of those things are going to come into fruition over the next five, six years. You're, you're hearing the large shipping comp companies and even the large ports trying to figure out this orchestration so that goods and services can come in and there won't be these, these backlogs. There's also the, the, all these tariffs, right? These orchestrated tariffs and you know, trade agreements that are in, in the world, the Pacific Trade Agreement, the you know, North American Trade Agreement, you know, the European Union agreements, all of these add levels of complexities when at the end of the day the client or the consumer just wants their goods. And if we are able to track them appropriately, we're able to validate them appropriately, we're able to uh, uh, digitize them and put them on my wallet, and so I know what all my goods are that I'm holding today, I think all of this is going to give a relative ease of use and a greater adoption of cryptocurrencies, uh, digital assets, loyalty coins and tokenization, uh, medical information, all of these things are gonna come into one aspirational uh, grouping. Right, um, you know, I've noticed that we spoke, we've mentioned digital wallets a few times, but I, for those folks who may not be overly familiar, I'm sure many people have heard it, but can you break down digital wallets, what they are, and the fact that you can have so much more than just cryptocurrencies contained in them. A digital wallet is your custodial um, uh, box. And in that box, depending on the development, whether it be through Ledger, Trezor, uh, a whole bunch of different formations, you can take in your digital code of what the holdings of those aspects are onto your phone. I have a digital wallet on my phone. It's off chain, but it's not necessarily a, an actual piece of hardware, like a, a Nano or, or something like that. You can do that as well. Uh, and inside that has a list of all the, the coins that I'm holding, all the digital assets I'm holding. And I think that is going to get more and more developed because there is a level of sophistication that you need to have, i.e. the passwords behind that, the, uh, the digital coding of what the asset is. So the, the breakdown of, uh, I hold the BT, uh, BTC, what is that actual digital code? Um, those things actually are inhibitors for the general consumer because they're, they're very hard to, to understand. Where do I place that code? If I mess up one digit, do I lose it forever? Um, you know, can I simplify just knowing what the information I have? There are multiple um, companies now working on that so that you don't have the level of complexity of, 
of you know secretly holding 12 very different words in a sentence structure uh, you secretly hold you know a 25 digit code line uh, all of those things I think are coming together right now and when you add in uh, you know cloud-based server protection through either you know Microsoft or through uh, Google Authenticators, 2FAs, all of these things will all come together in one formation where that holding of all of your personal information will be a lot more easier, whether it be through biometrics, whether it be through you know, thumbprints, something that's truly yours, your, your retina scan, they will all come together so that you can release your common goods and services and your, your, your assets. Right. And, uh, you know, it goes back to the whole security aspect of it. So, you know, there are many layers to this to keep your information safe. And your wallet would hold that tokenization of you as well, something you described earlier on during our discussion. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it can hold everything. It right. can literally, you can just box it inside your wallet saying, okay, these are your security tokens. So if I have Apple stock, can be in a digital form. I hold the CGI stock. It can be in a digital form. It can also have your titleship of your house in a digital form. It can have all your NFTs. You know, you might have a, a cyberpunk or some form of digital uh, artwork, or you might have the claim to royalties of now Snoop Dogg, right? All of these things can be in one wallet. Right, it's, it could be like your safety deposit box. It is. Essentially, right? It's essentially your safety, you're exactly right. Yes, so you have your birth certificate, your passport, and all, all of it tokenized in I, your wallet. I have an Apple phone. I don't know if you go in the Apple phone, you have all these QR codes of all the different tickets and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's what it's going to be. It's not right. a ticket, but it's going to be your QR codes or your digital uh, identity to those things and you're literally going to slice and dice them however you want mm -hmm. and if you wish to sell them you can put them on the market whether it be virtually on the metaverse or whether it be physically as a you know on the Facebook marketplace app yeah well you mentioned metaverse and earlier in the discussion you were talking about oculus and your ability to work anywhere right which was very intriguing like I, I don't know who wouldn't love to be on a beach uh, and have very flexible hours so that they can, you know, just really enjoy life. I think during the pandemic, you know, people really did realize the importance of time and the importance of life and enjoyment, the fragility of life. And so uh, you mentioned people wanting to work more for themselves, not that they're working less, but they're working for themselves. And I think this is a really big trend and something that will for sure continue um, as we move along. And utilizing these new technologies, you know, the metaverse, Oculus, so that you can still, let's say, work for a corporation instead of having this mass resignation that you mentioned earlier, but the corporation allows you to live your life as you see fit. So you don't now have a constraint to be, you know, in a very big and busy city. Uh, you can be off on a beach and you can, you know, you know what your assignments are, you know what your tasks are, you can set your hours accordingly and be able to do what needs to be done while also enjoying your life. I think that's it, I think that's a very promising feature and something that many individuals are very excited about. Yeah, I think I think many individuals are excited about it, but it's going to have to take a required balance 
of a corporation understanding what is the outputs that they need, what is the production level that they that they require, right? And the agreement between a contractual effort between you and that employee. There's certain obviously jobs you can never do uh, without being there on prem, right? As a doctor, you have to be in a hospital. There's no way of you know, surgically doing something unless you have a robot acting as your hands from somewhere else, but you're going to have to have on-prem certain things. Uh, and what I'm trying to say to you is corporations have to take an understanding of that. And the blockchain allows for that facilitation. Uh, Metaverse allows for that facilitation. Um, and we're having a generation now that is so used to that communication level my daughter and my son, for the better part of two years, spent uh, about you know, anywhere between three to five hours on Zoom. So their level of communication for them is very easy because they're used to using Zoom. I spent 25 years of my career inside an office space. And so my contribution level was to be social inside an office space. But there's now generations now that have been living with social media, Right, their consumption of just what they're seeing and who they're seeing, and you know, dating is through an application versus meeting them actually in a physical bar and having that communication level, and I think we're we're seeing that meld together, uh, and the Oculus with AR and VR will hopefully have that melding in a more visceral perspective, uh, because I think there's still very much a requirement in any job to have a social aspect or understanding. You need to read people. You need to socialize the, the ideas. You need to get confirmation from your boss. You need to have a level from an HR perspective of understanding what the commitment is from a company's perspective and from the employee's perspective. All of those things need a physicality to it. You can't do everything virtually. No, I completely agree with you. And, you know, what we know of our biology is that we're very social creatures. So everyone needs a certain amount of socialization in their life. Um, I suppose with, with certain jobs, though, as you brought up the example of the doctor, for instance, uh, obviously we need doctors in hospitals, we need lawyers in courtrooms, um, and even certain data analysts, right? They have to be on site, be able to, you know, uh, configure and look at servers and and all that good stuff. But there are also other careers that would allow you to be fully, be able to work digitally. But I, but I would say that for those careers, you can still sort of have that face-to-face -face by utilizing some of the other technologies that you mentioned, such as the metaverse, um, Oculus. But of course, you know, uh, for, even for those individuals, I, I don't suspect anyone will have their entire life uh, just digitally, right? It's not very feasible. Like we need no, to get out and, and have interaction. No, and I think we're we're getting into a place. Look, you have density issues, right? There's certain yeah. portions of this world that are so highly dense in population that even the ability to bring food in, right, or consumption of water is hard, right? Uh, there's droughts now, right? There's fires. There's all these kind of climate things and world things, environmental things that are going to absolutely force 
population to not be as dense and to move throughout the world. So if your role and job is critical to be there on-prem, whether you're a fireman or a policeman or you know, an agent to the government or whatever the case may be, then not absolutely those are requirements. But if your job has a fluidity to it, you know, and you're, you're a data entry or you're a client services person or you're a, you know, drop shipping or whatever the case may be, you can do that from anywhere. And I don't know necessarily people want to live in Tokyo with 44 million people. They may want to do that from, I don't know, uh, Northwest Territories or somewhere hot. Maybe it's Venezuela. I don't know. But I think what people are saying to themselves is, I don't need to be limited anymore. I don't need to live in Toronto or New York to be the head of a financial services company. I can do that from Charlotte or Manitoba or Halifax, right? I can fly in fairly easily. Well, not, not as easy as it used to be with <laughs> certain airports, but I certainly can do it on Zoom, right? Or I can have these kind of orchestrated VR worlds and have real uh, boardroom settings. Yeah. So that's the future. And I think uh, CGI and uh, the world is going to realize these things and are going to demand for advocacy and advisory and consultation of this. I think uh, companies are going to have to put proper product and technology behind it because the evolution is not... 50 years from now the evolution is happening in in moments the process is advancing far faster than even regulations can be put in place or in laws right and we gotta manifest that timing aspect uh better yeah i i completely agree with you lewis and I think that you know there will be this global collaboration, and all these new technologies will definitely help us uh, in becoming you know a better and more efficient society. So I think this is a great place to end it. Um, now, before we leave, for a few housekeeping items, Wealth Chat is currently a monthly podcast. It'll be released towards the end of each month. In the interim, we will have clips for you guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, like, and subscribe. And we will see you next time. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Hope this was informational. I know that CGI and the team around CGI and the, the employees of CGI are really looking forward to being that advocacy for, for you in the future. Absolutely. We, uh, you know, we have our eye on all these new emerging technologies. We think they're very exciting and we look forward to working with everyone on how to bring them to life.